I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, a psychoanalyst based in Sweden who works with people internationally, and this is episode 238 of Rendering Unconscious Podcast. My guest today is La Carmina, an award-winning alternative travel, culture, and fashion blogger, a journalist, a TV host, and an author of four books. She's here to talk about her latest book, The Little Book of Satanism. You can follow her on social media at La Carmina and visit her website, lacarmina.com. That's L-A-C-A-R-M-I-N-A. You can support Rendering Unconscious Podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. As always, huge thanks to all of our Patreon community. Your support is so greatly appreciated. You can also follow me on social media on Instagram and Twitter at Rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore or at TikTok at Dr. Vanessa Sinclair 23. Well, hello and welcome. I'm so excited to talk about your new book, The Little Book of Satanism. Thank you. Uh, so why did you end up writing this book? It's such a great little book. And I, I want to say right off the bat, I highly recommend it for anybody who's curious about Satanism because you do a really great job of like giving the whole outline of the history, including like, you know, the writers and the films and all of that, like the cultural aspects that I think that a lot of people don't tie together as part of the history of the movement, you know? Oh, thank you so much. Well, I... In fact, I wasn't the person who pitched the book, but the publisher came to me. So the publisher is Ulysses Press, and they publish under Simon & Schuster. And they do a lot of research into what type of books might be missing in the marketplace for a general audience. Now, there's already a very rich selection of books about Satanism, including Carl's book and, you know, you and Carl's work. Um, but in terms of something that's geared more for an introduction to Satanism or to more of a general reader, uh, the publisher thought that there could be a space for that. So they were scouting someone to write it, and my name came up because I had written a number of articles over the years about Satanism, starting on my blog, La Carmina blog, where I would write about my forays into Japanese Satanism, starting in around 2008, 2009. Uh, so that was my first introduction, really, to Satanism. That's what got me intrigued, and I started reporting on Satanism worldwide. Um, I started writing articles for different publications, and that led to my name coming up for the book. So the publisher spoke to me. We really clicked on the idea of a accessible general guide and overview that was, uh, you know, tried my best to be objective and present Satanism from as accessible and inclusive a point of view as possible. And that's really how it came together to a book deal. Yeah, it, it, it very much comes across, you know, you really cover like all aspects and all the different kind of groups because a lot of the groups are kind of polarized and they don't talk to each other so much. It's really nice that you've included everything, including like the process church and including, like you said, the Japanese aspect of Satanism that you mentioned right at the very end of the book. That's so interesting that that's how you got started. And I, I was just thinking you you mentioned that there's only like 1% of people in Japan that identify as Christian and what that would be like mm -hmm. to live in a culture where it's so such a minority. Yeah, although in a sense, people uh, don't consider it so much of a blasphemy. So in a sense, it isn't as a controversial an idea since the people around aren't generally Christian. So they don't see the symbols, whether it's the inverted cross or the pentagram or 666. They don't see that as an anti-Christian expression or something sinful. And so to them, Satanism is a subculture. It's kind of akin to death metal or heavy metal, sometimes something that's underground and edgy, but not necessarily something that's, you know, sinful. Uh, so it's a very different expression there. Also, in Japan, a lot of people see Satanism as a way to rebel and stand up to the conformist and conservative culture. I don't know if you've been, but in Japan, even though people may not be religious or Christian, there's still a lot of pressure to act a certain way, to fill certain roles in society, work hard, be a housewife, etc. 
And so for people, especially younger people that grow up, uh, people that are on the margins or don't feel they fit in, Satanism is a way for them to take back their power and question these standards and live life according to their own way. Yeah, that's great. And that's really where I feel like it, I mean, to me, that's really where it should be or really where it is. It's like you talk about it as like, it's always like for the outsiders or people that have been ostracized or like, and it really began, it's kind of like a feminist movement at its core. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the book, because it's a little book, that was the biggest constraint since it's a little book series that my publisher does. There's only so much that you can include within 150 or so pages. So I wish I could have gone into deeper dives into satanic feminism and all those influences there. But there's certainly mentioned throughout of the influence of Lilith, the idea and how it inspired, you know, romantic Satanism and movements going forward. But hopefully my goal with the book was to touch upon these topics, give an overview, get people intrigued and point them to the resources in the bibliography. So that if people were interested in certain elements, whether it might be one branch of Satanism or Satanic feminism or Japanese Satanism, they can dive further into the resources, into these academic sources to learn more. No, it's, it's great. It's great that you do that. And you have the bibliography. Yeah, amazing resources. A lot of these academic sources, um, when I spoke to my publisher, we agreed that even though these are terrific works, highly recommend works by Fairfax Snell. I think I have a few of his books listed in the bibliography, but these are very dense sources, academic mm. books that are expensive, hard to access. And just to be fair, you know, the general person, someone who might be kind of intrigued by Satanism, but doesn't know where to start or doesn't know too much about it, they're not going to reach for these sources first. So I think it's great that there is able to be an entryway into the, into this idea, into the ideas of Satanism and then people can go a bit further and do a deeper dive if they're so intrigued. I didn't, and I didn't know this is part of a little book series. That's so great. Now I'm going to have to check out what other little books they have. Um, but you do a great job of talking about kind of the, you know, the core of Satanism across all these groups really is like, you know, individuality, but also compassion and like living in an ethical way, really. And and that really comes across rather than just like, like having yourself be your own authority and having that kind of compassion and sense of ethics come from yourself rather than being imposed upon you from an outside authority, which that people just tend to kind of push back against that because those outside authorities are usually really unfair, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I try to let the reader come to their own conclusions when you go through the history of Satanism. And that's why I thought it was important to present all the ways in which people were deemed Satanists or by people in the past over the centuries and even killed and persecuted for allegedly being Satanists. And I think it really comes through how uh, people, uh, women especially, that were different or marginalized groups, people in the LGBTQ community were called Satanists through, from the medieval era up to the 1980s Satanic Panic, and even today, as we see even artists being called Satanists these days. Um, so I, I think that really comes across, hopefully, to the reader, and they can see why these values of questioning authority and standing up for your own individual expression are so pertinent to the way Satanism is generally expressed today. And I also try to make it clear that people have different interpretations of Satanism, of course. But within that, you do see some key uh, central convictions and expressions and themes, even throughout history before uh, the era of modern Satanism. You see that come together. And it's a very rich pot of ideas. It, it, it isn't arbitrary. It's not as if Satanism today was picking and choosing arbitrarily from certain, uh, you know, symbols or supposedly edgy ideas. No, there's really a rich history of centuries of persecution and, and thought behind it. No, absolutely. And I think that's really important to um, make people realize is like how dangerous it has been because people have been killed, right? Killed, people have been killed for being different. They still are being killed for being different. And like, you know, you mentioned like different uh, things that have happened, like the West Memphis Three and people have been persecuted when I gave a talk around, I called it the colonial crusade against magical thinking and how like people mm -hmm. with magical thinking practices and just folk magic practices have been persecuted. You know, it happens all the way up till till present day and like 
like Amanda Knox's case, for example, she went to Italy yes. as an exchange student and ends up embroiled in this thing where they're calling her like a satanic witch. You know, it's just like insane yep. how it still goes on. Yeah. And you, you see people getting death threats and, you know, the satanic temple was set on fire and they got bomb threats. And wow. I know LaVey had someone show up at his doorstep, you know, someone violent. There was just all these horrible instances throughout the years of uh, how it's dangerous to be a self-identified Satanist or just being a person who is deemed a Satanist, such as you mentioned Amanda Knox, who's completely innocent, but is deemed that by a society that has quite a Christian religious background. Yeah, no, it's really dangerous. Um, I went to Hamburg in Germany recently, and it was mm. really nice to see they had this exhibition um, of all of these great kind of pieces, like of Lilith and different kind of witches, like really famous paintings that you've seen in books so, so many times. And they were like all in this one exhibition. And the whole mm -hmm. exhibition was talking kind of about this, not from a satanic, but they were taking like a feminist lens and saying how like all these women had been looked at in this kind of, you know, witch demonic way uh, and kind of persecuted when really, you know, they were the ones that were kind of uh, being given in like the short end of the deal and like maybe we should look at these characters from a different view and I thought that was really amazing to see like a big museum you know mm -hmm. taking that perspective because that's you know I've been saying and people have been saying for like a while now it's yeah. really nice to be seeing like a big institution like that taking that kind of perspective yeah I love hearing that and I also think showing that through art and creative expression is a really powerful way to present a different perspective. And that's why in my work, as you've probably seen on my writing and my site, I focus a lot on travel and culture and Satanism expressed through that. So just like you, I might speak about an exhibition that has to do with art that has to do with the devil or travel destinations that have something Satanic related or events worldwide, because I think that's a really great way to communicate the beauty of it as well and to show people an alternate perspective that I do think is becoming more present uh, Satan not being seen as in just in the knee-jerk reaction of this evil terrible being but you know metaphorically some someone who is able to stand up to authority someone uh, that's the romantic classical hero who is willing to push back and forge his own path yeah, exactly. I, th I think it's really refreshing. We have to talk about your journey a little bit as well, because you, you seem to be doing amazing things all the time. And how did you kind of end up, you know, where you are? Yeah, sure. So um, I've always, maybe similar to you, I've always been kind of drawn to more esoteric and the gothic and alternative topics, even when I was a teenager. It's, you know, something I think it's just a person's bent or their personal interest. And so I've always loved things that were gothic and dark, even as a teenager. And I met Satanists at gothic parties in my teens and early 20s. But I didn't really become too enthralled with Satanism or that intrigued until I spent more time in Japan, including living there in my early 20s and getting to know the Japanese Satanists particularly Taiki, who ran the territory shop and parties in Osaka. He passed, unfortunately, not too long ago. Uh, but people in Japan, I just love their expression of Satanism. This was around 2008, 2009. So a lot of them were inspired by translations of the Satanic Bible. And they took to heart the idea of expressing yourself and forging your individual path and standing up against arbitrary norms, um, living your best Epicurean life as you went to some of those parties, the way they dressed. Uh, it was so decadent on the dance floor with the absence. It really, to me, was mm -hmm. such a wonderful expression of Satanism. Um, so that was my real uh, first deep dive. I started writing about that and it led to other things over the years. That's so wonderful. And I saw in your bio that you went to Yale Law School. Yeah, so that I was, you know, I went to school, I went to Columbia University in New York, and then I went to law school. Um, and the thing with law, some people get a bit thrown by that, but a lot of people who study law don't end up in the law firms practicing. Mm -hmm. They end up doing different things in writing or business or startups. And to me, I loved learning 
you know, about law. And it was so useful to me to be able to learn about contracts and business negotiations and all that. Um, but I wanted to do something more creative. I always loved writing and blogging took off around that time, 2008-ish. And it allowed me to express myself in a way that wasn't possible before. I could connect immediately with an audience, publish right away, share all these photos, especially about my forays into the subculture in Japan. And so I wanted to see where that would go. And it led to, you know, writing books. It led to doing TV hosting and all the things that I do today, branching out more into travel and food writing around the world. And I, I just love diving into offbeat subcultures everywhere I go. They don't have to necessarily do with Satanism or even Gothic topics, but they might be, you know, uh, an innovative chef, someone doing something new in, in Mexico City or in Israel or in Myanmar. I, I love seeing what's going on in these corners, these stories that are not usually told. Yeah, it was wonderful. I, I, of course, will link to your blog and everything, and everybody needs to definitely follow you because they're adventures are always yeah I'm always following your adventures they're amazing it's wonderful um yeah my one of my best friends also went to law school and she ended up working in a museum you know she there also you like had a more creative bent and uh yeah but of course it gives you like a great uh savviness I'm sure <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah no it's it's interesting to see you just never know where things can go and uh, technology, I have a love-hate relationship with it. The advent of blogging, social media, and, and whatnot allowed me to do what I do today. I know I'm really fortunate that a lot of my travels, were actually all of them pretty much are in collaboration with tourism boards or companies. So I'm able to do all these things because of blogging and social media. But at the same time, it can be <laughs> you know, overwhelming and the algorithm and just all the toxic whatnot that comes with social media. So it's a balancing act for sure. Yeah. And if you've been doing it actively since 2008, how have you seen the kind of landscape change over time? <laughs> Enormously. I started out when it was only MySpace and that was pretty much it. This was before Facebook really took off and then Instagram and whatever is going on today. And I treat social media as work. It's just a platform where I update things that have to do with, uh, you know, my work and articles that come out or uh, places that I report on. And it's not personal. So I try not to spend too much time engaging or scrolling. It's more just an additional platform that's for for me to express the longer form work and that's really the meat of it the books the long form blog posts the stories yeah absolutely i did the same thing i got hooked into it for a little while a few years back and then i realized i i have to like i had to like quit it felt like quitting smoking almost like <laughs> the addiction to the scrolling and i've had to like get, get myself off of it now i just use it yeah as a tool for work for posting and things like that mhm mm I saw you yeah. read some other books as well. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was blogging, because I was an early adopter, uh, that was an amazing way to launch into different, uh, different media. So when you're an early adopter, then people are more likely to present you with opportunities back in the day. Uh, it's harder, of course, now to break into any social media or, you know, blogging has been around for so long now. It's nothing new. But back then, I was one of the only people writing about certain aspects of Japanese pop culture on the internet. So back then there weren't resources about things like theme cafes. Now, including in Sweden, you'll have cat cafes, maid cafes. It's a well-known concept, but back then they were brand new and they were only in Japan. So uh, timing is everything. And I pitched a book about the craziest, wackiest theme restaurants in Japan. People can still find that book online and that was published through penguin random house and i also wrote something about the cute food decoration trend called cute yummy time again that was something that was emerging at the time so when a topic is hot that's when publishers tend to be more open or you know main, mainstream bigger publishers it's different if you're publishing independently or doing more esoteric topics yeah absolutely um no, you've made me, I've always wanted to go to Japan, but I haven't been. But Carl and I have definitely put it on our list. We're so averse to traveling at the moment since COVID. We used to travel, uh -huh. we used to go somewhere like every month. And then since uh -huh. COVID, we've only been out of Sweden like a couple of times and only like to kind of nearby countries. 
And then we just like are right. back home and we just like are so happy in our house now. <laughs> we also moved from a yeah. tiny apartment to like a big house. So now we have room <laughs> to like spread out and everything. But when we do get the travel bug again, I want to just like go far and go like all the way to Japan and be there for like a few weeks and really enjoy yes. it. Yeah, we'll reach out if you do. I'll, I'll give suggestions. I can introduce you to some of the satanic people there. And I, I do recommend, I think Japan is a great destination for everyone because there's something for everyone to enjoy and it's uh, it's safe and there's it's easy enough to get around, but it's also such a completely different culture that you'll feel you're in a different universe. And these days things are expensive and they will continue to be. So I do encourage you, if you're interested, try to do it on the earlier side before the next pandemic or whatever happens mm -hmm. to cut it off again and certainly stay for a few weeks to make the most of it. Oh yeah. And we will definitely be hitting you up. I follow all of your like Japanese Twitter group things about Japan. Yeah. <laughs> I already got like my eyes on a few different spots. Nice. <laughs> yeah. I'm hoping to, I think I will, well, I will be in Europe in fact this summer too. So we should, chat about that. I have a job sending me to Europe. I don't have the dates confirmed yet, but I'm thinking I've never, I have been to Sweden, to Stockholm, but I haven't been to Norway. And I was thinking I could check out some of the things related to the, you know, the satanic metal scene there. Absolutely. And Carl knows, Carl knows everything and everybody. So he's, nice. he's a good person to help with things like that. And in your book, I noticed a couple of things that were specifically about Sweden that, of course, piqued my interest. Because you said one of the very, like, earliest, earliest records of some people being, like, satanic worshippers were in Sweden. Yes. Like, some, like, <laughs> Swedish, like, drifter criminals, they sounded like, that felt like <laughs> yeah. they shouldn't be, like, making offerings or prayers to God because they were, like, doing criminal activities. So they, they would uh, ask Satan for help instead and protection. Yeah, I thought that was so interesting. And again, this is the first record that we have, but who knows, right? It just seems to me that it makes sense if, you know, in the, this era, Satan was presented as the antithesis to God, as this evil being. It's just interesting that it kind of makes sense if someone is on the margins, if they're, you know, criminals or even just people kind of deemed bad by society but maybe they were sex workers or abortionists and whatnot kind mm -hmm. of makes sense that they might turn to satan and you see that worldwide too with different cultures one being in mexico was santa muerte mm -hmm. the, our lady of death the skeleton lady you may picture her as a skeleton wearing robes holding that scythe and people there also people that are deemed you know working in the gray areas or people that may be deemed sinful by the Catholic church there because they might be sex workers or whatnot, petty criminals. They turn to Santa Muerte because she accepts everyone. <laughs> so I, I think a lot of the book also talks to human nature and how humans try to explain the world around them. Or this is also a psychology thing, right? Come to terms with who they are uh, and explain why bad things happen or their place in the world. So I do think there is something in human nature to tell a story about, well, if this is who I am and the greater world is telling me I'm a bad person, well, why don't I embrace this other path and find power in <laughs> seeking, you know, help or seeking strength from a deity that accepts me as I am? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, like I have a lot of friends that practice like Kimbanda and it's kind of also like Catholic folk magic traditions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those kind of practices like Santeri and Kimbanda, um, and you mentioned Palo Mayombe at some, at some yep. point as well. Um, those all like came from people who were enslaved and they didn't have the power in the society. And so they found yes. power, you know, the way they could, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I love the aspect of rebellion, too. I traveled in Cuba. I loved Havana. And I also checked out the Santeria there and, you know, just the way they would hide their worship under the guise of worshiping Catholic saints, but in fact, they were uh, stand-ins for their own gods and these rituals. So interesting. It is really interesting and it's, it's so rich. And I found like, you know, being a psychologist, you know, I found that these kinds of pantheons of saints, these like folk saints and, and, uh, 
other deities they're always so much richer they're like they're so rich and complex and they all like mm-hmm. uh, really reflect different aspects of like humans and human psychology in a way that like for me like the monotheistic like christian christianity really doesn't it really seems like it pales in comparison to like psychological complexity compared to like these pantheons with all these great deities yeah, yeah, I'd be interested in your perspective on that because more and more, I think a lot of our reactions to the world around us, I always go back to how at the end we still have chimpanzee brain in the way, you know, chimps just looking for status, for gratification and explanations to a world that we still find confusing, even with all the scientific knowledge we have. In a sense, the more information we have, it's more and more difficult to parse out and think critically about what's important. And you see that with fake news and with polarized narratives on controversial topics, especially these days in politics and in public health. And I just see that in Satanism too, how, you know, people throughout the years, they would see Satan in a different light to perceive, to explain the world around them. Why do these things happen? Or why is my place in a certain area? You know, why why am I a certain way? And I still see that today too, with Satanists uh, finding comfort or, you know, identity in Satanism, so sort of as a psychological element. And I'd be interested in your thoughts about it. Yeah, I actually think I'm going to write a paper on, it's either just going to be psychoanalysis and Satanism or psychoanalysis, witchcraft and Satanism. They all kind of go, mm-hmm. they go together in different ways. But I remember the first time, okay, so I, I ended up in this whole Satanism thing because I married into it, basically married and Carl, <laughs> right? And, uh, yes. and of course, I was a goth before and I love subcultures as well. So for me, this is no problem. It's like, great, you know, and Carl met LeVay, you know, in the late 80s. You've interviewed Carl, so you know. Yeah. And then uh, LeVay made him a member of the Church of Satan and he's been like friends with everybody uh there mm-hmm. ever since and and carl brought me uh up to poughkeepsie in 2016 uh to the new black house in poughkeepsie where peter gilmore and peggy and adramia live and i met yep. them and they're so nice and everybody i've met is just so nice and wonderful and welcoming and you know just you know there's no judgment everybody's just very much like everybody should just do their own thing and everybody accepts that and um, and then I re I read the Satanic Bible like in high school or whatever, but I'm like, I should reread this and see what's going on here. Um, and then I was really impressed that like Lave was talking about like, you know, accepting trans and like any any kind of way that you are, except your kink, you know, writing about like mm-hmm. fetishes and all these things that like it's all great and not only like accepted and don't feel ashamed about it, but like flaunted and really get into it, you know? And I was like, that's wonderful. And I the first time I visited their house. I remember going back on the train uh, with Carl and I was like, I'm going to write a paper about psychoanalysis and Satanism and I have not written this paper yet. So I think it's about <laughs> time that I do this because I really see these kind of ways that they're similar. And then it's like, you know, I feel like my whole job as an analyst is to help people like, well, give I give them a space so they can figure it out themselves, really, which is also very satanic. Like, you know, yeah. you, you, nobody can do this for you. You have to kind of figure it out on your own or come to your own place. What's what's good for you? What works for you? But like, mm-hmm. you know undoing these narratives that are put on you people make such statements about themselves I'm this way I'm that way it's like you know a lot of times if it's negative or punitive it's like well whose words are that is that like your parents words or like what how did they get into your head is that something society makes you think about yourself you know yes parsing out a part like is this really what I believe or is this what I've been told to believe you know based on this or that based on parents or family or society or my position or my sexuality or whatever. So it's like really trying to get rid of all those kind of narratives that have been put upon you so you can decide yourself like how you want to be and what you, what you are and how you want to be in the world, you know? Oh, that is such important work. And I think the way I put it in the book is often a lot of people that grow up in a very Christian or evangelical background, when they start questioning it, often it's these inklings of doubt and you don't really know how to completely approach it and how to ask these questions. And sometimes they're even too scary to confront. So I think work like yours is so important in helping people, again, not forcing the answer, but helping them along their path to discover for themselves what works for them. And often I do see a lot of people who grew up in Christian backgrounds being drawn to Satanism because they can recontextualize 
these narratives say uh, one example I put was the whole idea of, you know, Satan as the snake being evil and tempting people into sin, but why not recontextualize it metaphorically as well? Satan is just trying to, the gift of knowledge is the best, you know, he wants people to think for themselves, to come to their own conclusions rather than obeying some God. And so in that sense, the snake is metaphorically this great, you know, he's encouraging people to pursue knowledge, um, so it's a way to recontextualize a story that they grew up with. Absolutely, exactly. And even like being allowed, like, am I allowed to question these things? Like, like you said, like when people grow up in these narratives, you don't people don't even realize that they can question them. They're just kind of like givens, you know. This is how it is. This is how I am. And just even opening up space to like start questioning, like, you know, is that true? You know, am I like that? What, like, who said? You know, who is this authority that told me <laughs> this is how it is? You know, it's just like been handed down from on high. And I think I think yeah. overall people are doing that a lot a lot more now. Yeah, it's really good to see that, and you see that across the board in different cultures. So sometimes, as in the case with Japan or Hong Kong, it's maybe it's not related to Christianity or even religion. Hong Kong is mostly atheist, but there's still so much pressure. You know, the legacy of Confucianism and family and social pressure that's still there. So I just think it's so interesting that Satanism within that context, even if there isn't the Christian blasphemous element, there's still this same idea of trying to figure out who you are within the context of society and question, which narratives did I just grow up believing or that my relatives imposed upon me? And what what do I actually believe? Yeah, because the parental narratives can be just as strong as God's, I'm sure, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what the and society in general. Of you, what society expects of you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I, I remember reading in the book, you said that um, kind of core values are self-reflection and pursuit of knowledge and living compassionately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, there's so many different approaches to Satanism again. And I even make mention of theistic Satanists, but you know it, it cannot you just can't cover everything within a small volume so the focus is on non-theistic um, or atheistic satanism and within that within when you look at the different groups that are most prominent today and independent satanist groups around the world you i found that these these core values to be mostly present and i think they're so important for finding our way in the world and uh, figuring out our place and also a, a sense of community I think one of the greatest things I've discovered over the years was the sense of community, especially among the Japanese Satanists. And you also see that in groups like the Satanic Temple or independent groups like Satanic Bay Area, just uh, how they bring people together with shared values and they're able to create art and podcasts and, you know, all these great group endeavors, community works, charity works uh, that make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. And you talk about the Satanic Temple as like adding this kind of more social justice aspect to Satanism. And like, you know, uh, I think the Church of Satan stands as like to that religion doesn't belong in politics, which I think is great, a great stance. Um, even though the United States says that it's not a Christian country, it acts like it is. And other minority uh, religions aren't fairly represented. And so the Satanic Temple seems to be showing that with these different kind of points that they make and bringing lawsuits um, when they're not afforded the same uh, opportunities as, as Christianity, for example. Yeah, most recently with the After School Satan Club has been really taking off. And I don't know if you've been following it, but a lot of schools have been pushing back and not allowing these clubs to take place, which completely violates the sense of religious freedom and equal rights, you know, equal standing. So it's it's such an important point to be brought up, especially in the U.S. and in Western countries that are very Christian dominated, showing that there are different standards for groups, you know, in in the country where Christianity is, many people consider that to be the official religion, even though it isn't, it's supposed to be a secular nation. In practice, there are many points where Christians are favored. So I think it's really interesting that Satanists, it's apt that they're the ones to bring this to attention, to bring and to challenge these uh, laws, unfair elements through lawsuits. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, 
living in Sweden has has given me really good perspective on that because I think when you grow up in the U.S. you don't notice it as much um, as and now being outside of it I could see it more clearly like like even like being sworn in on a Bible you know and like uh-huh. you know, they, they do a lot of like religious things even in courtrooms like when you have to swear on a Bible that you're telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth like they don't do that in Sweden <laughs> like yes. I was like pointing this out like what is this you know or like I'm from Florida I'm from Miami originally and mm. so that's that's a whole shit show unto itself with, with all of this <laughs> but like you know even when we were driving on the highway or something and you'd see all these like anti you know abortion billboards and stuff and Carl would be like oh, you know what is this like and I'm like yeah why is yeah. why are you allowed to do that like what what is this kind of imposing these billboards <laughs> and these moralities on people like while you're driving down the street you know yeah. And you know, it's so interesting, even with me, I grew up in Canada and we are not as Christian as our Southern neighbors, but at the same time, I was just having a conversation with some school friends and we were saying back then when we were kids in elementary school, for instance, we would still learn only Christmas carols and there would be some sort of Christmas service. And I just went along with it because I didn't know any differently. It's like, okay, well, we have to sing these Christmas songs. But then now you think, well, what about the, all these kids that were Jewish or, you know, the atheists or not? part of the Christian. Uh, I, I grew up in an atheist family, but still growing up, I just thought, well, I'm in the, I'm in Canada. So that's what people do. They celebrate Christmas. Therefore we're going to sing, you know, away in a manger in our school choir and in, in school. And you just never question it until later on sometimes. And I think that's so interesting. I love how people can come to new understandings of themselves, their place in the world, the people around them. Uh, you see that a lot too with LGBTQ rights throughout the years, you know, people not understanding where that comes from and then affording more rights, marriage and whatnot, and the pushback. So it's interesting to see how people change their minds. Even interracial marriage was seen as illegal and horrible, you know, 50 years ago. So a lot changes, people change or they yes. can ideally. <laughs> Yeah, completely insane to me. Carl also grew up in an atheist family. Y'all are so lucky. (laughs) My parents were like essentially hippies, but for some reason, like when they became parents, they sent me to a Christian school. And like, and my mom, when I asked her later, like, why did you do that to me? You know, it was like, it was Episcopalian. So it's like a Catholic light. And uh, mm-hmm. she's like, oh, it was a better education than going to public school. I'm like, well, you could have told me that because, like, I actually believed all this stuff that they were teaching. Like, they taught us that, like, the oh. earth was, like, 6,000 years old, you know? It's just like, like, why are you allowed to tell kids that? That's just false, you know? <laughs> like, I actually believed that yeah. I was, like, 12, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's one aspect of the atheist community and also, you know, non-theistic Satanism that... Uh, I also had a friend who, when she had kids, she was thinking, you know, I kind of wish she was considering I, she, she was atheist. She didn't grow up religious, but she thought, what if I joined the church just so the kids could have a sense of community? Are they missing out on some sort of spiritual element? And I, you know, talked her out of it, <laughs> but a lot of atheistic communities do lack these rituals for you know, celebrating momentous occasions, whether it might be a, a baptism or death rituals. So I think it's great to see Satanists uh, creating these community elements and rituals from starting, you know, with LeVay and his his funeral and with the wedding and all that to what we see today. I think it's really important to have these aspects for community expression and spiritual expression even if you're an atheist yeah and you talk about the satanic temple they have um like satanic ministers and they'll do unbaptizings i actually Mm -hmm. unbaptized unbaptized myself ritualistically uh quite recently actually just last year because i just realized like i want to get rid of that (laughs) why do they do that to babies i don't think that's right so yeah, it actually I think it I think it was really freeing, at least you know, like you talk about the ritual aspects in here for people who choose to practice that, you know, whether mm-hmm. people believe in deities or not. It can just be psychologically like a great kind of uh thing to do to help process things or purge things, or like like you talked about LeVay would do these kinds of like enactments, enacting things and like psychodrama. It's just a yes. different way of kind of processing, which like assault therapies do things like that as well, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm glad that there are books like his books, Satanic Rituals, and Shiva Honey does a great ritual book. There are these aspects where if it 
you know, if it helps people and supports their path, I'm, it's so great that people can do these rituals together or individually and find that release. I think the psychological aspect is so important. And, you know, a lot of the time, if you're grappling with these, uh, you know, ideas, these ideas that were imposed upon you, that you feel bad about, it's important to find a way forward. And these rituals can certainly help with psychological release. Yeah, and I think another important thing you talk about is how you show how this kind of satanic panic uh, has been going on for like forever, basically. Like there's always kind of been <laughs> this kind of like persecutions. Maybe it goes through a lull for a little bit, but like it keeps popping up over centuries and centuries um, mm-hmm. all the way into the present day. And I think that's important for people to understand. And they seem to have these like similar themes with this like pedophile rings and stuff. And then yep. and all these different fantasies. I always get so fascinated with this. Like uh, I've read some stuff from the Inquisition kind of recently um, reading about these um, kind of folk saints and Kimbanda. And um, they're like, you know, the fantasies that these like inquisitors have, you know, they're so uh-huh. in depth. Or even if you just pick up a book of their saints, like I have a book of like Catholic saints and you read about these saints and they're always these like young, like teenage girls, like running through the streets naked. They get their you know breasts cut off and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, whose right. fantasies are these? You know? Right? <laughs> these are yeah. some weird people's fantasies that they've like then like, you know, projected at some women usually uh people that are non-conforming gender and then and then they've persecuted them for like them having these fantasies that's what it seems like to me absolutely you just see that over and over like the malleus maleficarum if i'm saying it right it's again there's all these vivid descriptions of witches copulating with the devil and kissing his backside and all these very kinky things like hmm (laughs) psychologically where is this coming from too right Uh, especially in a society where things are deemed sinful and wrong and so you impose this always upon women too and people on the margins and and it's just so interesting too the book goes through how uh, the whole connection with the Freemasons arose because a lot of people, you know, in the general public think, oh, somehow are the Satanists Freemasons or how are they connected? And it's just ridiculous that it all boiled down to one hoax by a guy in the 1890s in France who, you know, wrote these books on purpose to mislead and just in order to mess with the Catholic Church and sell sell books and make money. And he created this whole narrative around uh, a group of secret cabal of Satanists within Freemasonry and that those elements you still see today with QAnon and all these uh, fake news drops, the narrative sticks. And also the idea of, Oh, we must protect the children that always comes up as well. Even in, you know, the sixties, the seventies with um, rise of the pill and divorce and insecurities about how are our children dealing when they're not in nuclear families. So you also see the rise of Satanism and satanic nar- narratives there and leading to the satanic panic. Yeah, absolutely. That was a really good point to tie together. You know, when women had this kind of relative freedom, having the pill and having feminism emerge and women were working and not in the home mm-hmm. as much, not having to be in the home as much by force, you know, then this kind of conservative edge comes and like starts worrying about the kids' well-being and and brings this kind of satanic panic to the fore. That was a really good kind of connection that you made. Um, and and like you said, these themes they they keep going around. Like they're always worried about the children and these pedophile rings. When like yes. like the church, like the Catholic Church, <laughs> is known and documented to have like actual yep. pedophile rings for like a very long time now. But yet they keep getting projected onto like outsiders or people that you know, like mm-hmm. the West Memphis Free Three or Hillary Clinton or whatever. And it's just uh, it's just amazing right. to me how how the culture can still stand in this position i guess it's this like patriarchal white culture it keeps uh-huh. this position that the the christianity is still this god is like still the right way and that other people have to kind of defend their position to this position that is obviously not healthy and and actually has persecuted others and actually has uh abused children 
<laughs> right. It's so easy to overlook that. And I think, you know, of course, as humans, there's a psychology, of course, we must, we have this instinct to protect kids. It's, you know, important within the psychology to make sure the kids are safe. And then you see that uh, take on, you know, a valid concern becomes a way to demonize a whole group or to frame a question in the wrong way, like we see now with you know, kids with gender dysphoria and the whole debate or, you know, people being anti-trans because like, well, what if we're harming our children or whatnot? And you just see that over and over, over the years, um, using this narrative of, oh, we must protect the children in order to take away rights from women, as you mentioned, in the feminist movement in the 70s, in the 80s, women trying to be independent, making their own money, working, and then this whole, oh, but the children narrative comes in order to take away their agency. And then you see that today with people in the LGBTQ community. It's always, again, women and people that are different and, you know, considered sinners that are the brunt of these accusations of Satanism. Yeah, and you also mentioned the Swedish movie Hexan. It's from like 1922. Yeah. Carl and I had our most recent psychoanalysis art in the Occult Conference in Copenhagen in October. And we screened uh, not the original Hexan, but the Witchcraft Through the Ages with William Burroughs' kind of narrative over it. But uh, when I was rewatching it, uh, we had it on 16 millimeter. When I was rewatching it, um, I was just like, all these women are just like older women. They're just like old women that like, uh-huh. like these like men who are persecuting <laughs> them in this film. You know, they're just like, you know, I guess they would call them, you know, hags, you know, they're just like, yes. oh, these women yeah. aren't like young and beautiful anymore. And now they're older. We don't have any like sort of sexual use for them. So instead, we're just going to like torture them. You know, <laughs> that's <just> basically <laughs> what it seems like. It's like they just like, can't leave us alone you know they just have to find a way to torture us either it's not going to be sexually they'll just do it outright yeah no it's true and it's just a harsh truth that you know society as it is today devalues women as they get older and they really push back against women having agency over their bodies like you see in america with the rollback of reproductive rights laws uh, banning abortion overturning roe v wade that's an attempt to keep women right uh you know financially dependent and when you're having kids your your options are more limited often for career and whatnot so a lot of these laws they're trying to take away agency of women and individuality and, you know, I think a lot of these things, there's social, the social pressures are something that women have to constantly be fighting against, too. Recently, have you heard about Ozempic and Wegovy, like those weight loss injection drugs? No. Just being marketed. Yeah. And I see because I'm also, you know, on social media and you see influencers and why not taking it. And it's just I see so many people falling into this narrative of, oh, a quick fix. And a lot of people aren't thinking, why am I even thinking about doing this or you know what are the long-term effects but these pressures exist and a lot of them are just not seen clearly and not questioned no yeah no it's really sad and even uh i I had a friend talking about it once even like with trans transness like the pressure Mm -hmm. to become you know to be able to pass and this sort of thing and like oh you know why can't people just be like you know on a whole spectrum of gender where you don't have to still adhere to like the specific idea of what beauty is, you know, for what gender you're, uh, what gender you are, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's just so unfortunate that, uh, I mean, from what I, when I talk to people about that, it's so complicated because often if they don't feel they pass, they're more, they're in danger too. Like there's Mm -hmm. increased risk of violence and society should not be that way, but it's just so complicated, all these different pressures. And it's unfortunate. Absolutely. Um, and one more thing we have to talk about for sure. And we have to talk about yeah. Baphomet because I love yeah. Baphomet. <laughs> I feel like Baphomet is so misunderstood. <laughs> and you do a beautiful way of talking about Baphomet's history and Elvis Levy. And yeah, we want to talk a little bit about what Baphomet is. Sure. I think, yeah, first, I'm curious, why do you think Baphomet is misunderstood or which elements? 
I guess people just see Baphomet and they just think, I guess it's the same thing. The Christian projection of Baphomet is just being, you know, something dark or scary and not really mm-hmm. seeing, you know, how Baphomet brings together all these different kinds of elements and dualities and is like, you know, feminine and masculine and animal and human and even mm-hmm. has like the angelic wings and uh, the as above, so below. It's like really like such a figure of, to me of like dynamism and bringing back all these aspects and not being like in one pole or the other um but i think people just see it that don't know or really look closely at what baphomet is and just react to it i guess because of the goat head and the horns yeah and you know this is so interesting how we are primed because we grow up in society to react in certain ways to images but if we take a step back and question it a little we think well why are we initially thinking this is horrific and evil and you know if you just presented it without any context if you're an alien who arrived on the planet perhaps you would see it differently and i think baphomet is a great example uh for instance the satanic temple put up a baby baphomet statue up on capital grounds in order to you know because if all religions are allowed to put up holiday displays then satanists should be as well so they put up a baby baphomet and a lot of satanists thought oh how cute it's like a baby (laughs) baphomet um with little horns being swaddled but then a lot of christians pushed back and said oh it's so terrifying this is a symbol of evil but it's interesting because satanists see the same uh, symbol as oh it's pretty cute And then they could say at the same time, if you go into a church and you see Jesus nailed to a cross with blood running down and the crown of thorns, uh, you know, from one perspective, you could think, oh, this is just terrible S&M horrific torture Mm -hmm. image. It's scary. But others from a different perspective, the Christian perspective might have a very different view, right? They think it's this amazing symbol of of these positive values. So I agree with you. I think a lot of people, especially in the general audience, which this book is often for, it's people might come to Baphomet and think, oh, I've seen this in heavy metal or, you know, I've seen this associated with evil, but hopefully the book helps them understand the roots of it. And in, in, in Levy's book, um, um, how he created the original image. And as you mentioned, it represents knowledge and the, as above, so below, and the union of opposites, uh, the feminine, the masculine, and it's just a a beautiful symbol. It's uh, about pursuing knowledge and, you know, having uh, the union of all these these elements. And it's cool to see how Baphomet is depicted in different ways now. I mentioned Japan. When you go there, you'll see cute versions or kawaii versions of Baphomet. So I I think it's great that in addition to the more traditional form, there's also cute versions that make him more accessible or make them more accessible. Absolutely. And that's one thing when I interviewed Blanche Barton, um, you know, she pointed that out, you know, people hear the word Satan and they just have this knee-jerk reaction. And I think that's why I actually talk about it more and more is because mm-hmm. I see like how people, even people who are supposedly atheists or secular, you know, they're like, oh, I knew you were into witchy stuff or tarot, but Satanism. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. what does that mean? Like, what does that mean? <laughs> like, like, I didn't have that reaction, you know, when, when I met everybody, but I noticed how other people do have that reaction and I just feel like I kind of feel like from a social justice aspect like if we can get to the point where like people cannot have that reaction to Satanism Mm -hmm. so much then like we would be in a really good place because if people if more people could see like what Mm -hmm. Satanists are trying to do how they don't hurt animals how they don't hurt children how Mm -hmm. they're trying to make sure everybody has equal rights and they're trying they're doing I mean the Satanic temples work like with all these lawsuits I mean I do not and Lucian Greaves in that and having to deal with all that that must be so such that's so much work I mean I'm sure there's a whole team but like you know that's just so much work to to be dealing with all of that like the legality in, in the U.S. justice system you know so props to all of them um but like you know it's like really important to uh, show like these things aren't equal if this is happening to this religion you know it is a recognized religion it's a religion in the u.s mm-hmm. it should be afforded all the same rights and you mm-hmm. know imagine how everybody else from every other religion and background is being treated you know 
Yeah. And you see that with established religions too. And that's why I think for me, travel has been such a great way to really get immersed in the local culture and see what it really is. As I mentioned, what Santeria really is, or, you know, going to the Middle East and seeing Islam, which is so demonized also in the West, Mm -hmm. but to see, in fact, to meet people that are Muslim and to go into the mosques and see how uh, their practice really is, that presents an entirely different perspective than the, you know, Osama bin Laden terrorist narrative that also seems to be the knee-jerk reaction, especially among people in the U.S. Absolutely. So what do you have coming up next? Is there anything else that's coming up that you want to mention that we haven't gotten to or any other aspect that you wanted to be able to touch on? Yeah, so... I'm not sure yet because with, as you probably know, with books, the process is, takes a long time. So I'm not sure if there's something up coming up next. For now, this book is out and I've been doing virtual Zooms and book clubs and discussions, author Q&As. So if anyone's interested in doing a book club about the little book of Satanism with your congregation or club, I'm more than happy to do a little chat and Q&A with you. So please reach out if so. And I'm always happy to chat with people through my site, lacarmina.com. And I'm on social media at lacarmina. And I try my best to be responsive. So there's that. And then I'll always be uh, updating my socials and my blogs with my travels around the world. I have some things coming up. I'm, in fact, heading to Mexico next week. I don't know when this podcast comes out, but I'll be there in April. Uh, And then I'll be, as I mentioned, in Europe in the summer and hopefully Japan in the fall. So now that travel is open again, I want to make the most of it before it's taken away. I want to be able to see my friends and see all these, uh, you know, be part of the satanic scene in Japan once more and to be able to get to know people of different cultures and backgrounds and keep on opening my understanding of the world. So I'll be sharing that on my socials as always. And if people have tips for places to visit, please let me know. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Like, I mean, it was lovely to talk to you. And if when you come to Europe, you know, we'll see if we can meet up or it would be so much fun to meet up with you in Japan one day. I would love that. And I will reach out if I'm planning this Norway journey. I'm sure you and Carl might have some recommendations. Absolutely. And Norway, yeah, it's right next door. So it would be easy for us to pop on over. That would be amazing. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with La Carmina. Be sure to visit her website, lacarmina.com, and follow her on social media at La Carmina, and pick up her book, The Little Book of Satanism. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Many thanks to Carl Abrahamson for providing the intro and outro music for Rendering Unconscious Podcast. And now a song I did with Swedish artist Nordvari called Sleazy Scandals. From our album Inner Underworld, available at Bandcamp. Visit highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com. All our music there is free download, name your price. So enjoy. Babylon, Lilith, Lucifer. Babylon, Lilith, Lucifer. Lucifer, Babylon, Lilith, Lucifer.
task of the eye is to peer into the telescope. Their name liveth forevermore. I manifest the best. Babylon, Lilith, Lucifer, Chaos, Sleazy Scandal, my friend brings silence.